I'm not sure there's ever been a moment in our culture's, in, in our history, when our culture's moral relativism and complete disdain for the Word of God has been more set on display, at least not as vividly as it has been this past week. Knowing what we know about how God has dealt with nations throughout history, I find it impossible to believe that God is not poised to, to, to lay out his judgment upon this nation in ways that perhaps we've never known. I am not a prophet. I am not predicting anything. But if the pattern of the word of God is true, if the pattern of God's hand upon peoples and nations is consistent, then there are days ahead that we should be prepared for. And I'm not talking about buying a generator and hoarding food. It's a wake-up call for us. God is doing something. And we have, we have to respond in a way that is faithful to the gospel. We have to respond in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. You think about how this came to be. Frankly, it's, it's very, very, very simple. All of this is owing to man's love of sin. That's why he hates God. That's why unregenerate men hate God's word. It's not because there's a lack of evidence that God exists. It's not because God's way is not demonstratively better for society than living according to our impulses, lusts, and pleasures. The reason sinful and unregenerate men hate God and his word is because man loves sin. They love sinning. He loves, to, he loves to think about sin and dream about sin and brag about sin and indulge freely in sin without any constraint, any supposed deity telling him that what he is doing is immoral. That's intolerable. And so do what you must to get God out of the picture. And this is why people reject the God of the Bible. It's not because they don't say that they believe in God. To the contrary, most people say they do believe in God, but these same people are, are offended by the thought of a God who is exclusive, a God who says things like, the only way to get to heaven is through my son, Jesus Christ. The only way. If you say that only those who repent of their sins and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ are right with God, you will be blackballed by this culture. They will not love you for such a message. And you will be thought of either as a religious extremist and maybe dangerous, or you are a fool. If, however, you love God, and belong to Christ, and love his word. If the Holy Spirit resides in your hearts, then such statements as these ring forth a note of pure joy and expectation for our souls. And we just sang about this. We sang this very text. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life, Jesus. 
One such statement that is maddening to the unregenerate world and precious to us is that very statement that we just sang. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. How many come to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. For those who know Christ, this statement is pure joy. We love this. Now, let's take a minute to read the context here. We are in John chapter 14, and and I just found this text providentially to be what we need this week. This is not a topical message. It may sound like it from the beginning here. It just happens to be where we find ourselves this week in the progression, which just encourages me to take John slowly. (laughs) (laughs) I could have rushed past this a few weeks ago, and we would have missed it. John 14, 1 through 6, and you can remain seated for this. Just listen. How about this for a needed statement? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Isn't that great? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and and how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's remember the narrative here. Jesus is with his men in the upper room. This is their final night together, and Jesus is going to be in just a few short hours, literally hours from now. The world of the disciples is about to come crashing down. It will be shattered. They will be bewildered and confused and ridden with anxiety because of the events that would soon take place. And Jesus is fully aware He's fully aware of what they're feeling. He's fully aware of what's coming. He knows exactly what's going to happen. In fact, he clearly and very plainly says in verses 33 and 36 of chapter 13 that he must leave them and that where he is going, they cannot come. And Peter responds in verse 37 of chapter 13 by declaring himself Jesus' champion. Uh, Others may leave you, but I will never leave you. Others may abandon you in your hour of need, but not me. I will gladly die for you. I will lay down my life for you. And in return for his bravado, Jesus announces instead that Peter will soon be a casualty of his own cowardice. And that probably hit the disciples pretty hard, although no one really understood the gravity of what was going to happen. It must have hit the disciples hard. I mean, if if Peter was going to be taken, then, then what hope would there be for anyone else? 
It's in this context that Jesus offers them a message of hope to calm and sustain their troubled hearts. To calm and sustain. They were going to need to be sustained because this thing was not going to end tonight. It was going to start tonight, but it wasn't going to end tonight. It's it's going to get progressively worse. First we have that he's going someplace. Then he announces uh, a place where they can't come. Then he announces that somebody's going to betray him. Then Judas leaves. And then Jesus talks about their hearts being troubled, which they were beginning to be, but not anywhere near what they were going to experience in just a couple of hours. And even that was nothing compared to what would happen a number of hours later when Jesus would be actually nailed to the cross. The hope of believers, beloved, is not a hope in politicians. It's not a hope in presidents. It's not a hope in any Supreme Court. Our hope is in the imperishable, undefiled inheritance laid up in heaven for us by Jesus Christ himself. Where do you find hope? Where do you find hope? Where were you looking for hope this week when you heard the news? Our hope is found, first, in trusting in Jesus' person, and secondly, in trusting in Jesus' promises. And that's kind of the outline, kind of two points there. Not very clever, but I think consistent with the message. Our calling is to have faith in Jesus' person, and you might say his presence, But his person, I mean, if it weren't for who he is, his presence would be meaningless. But his person and his promises. So let's look at the first. Hope is found in trusting Jesus' person. Jesus says in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is a command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He knows the kind of temptations they're beginning to experience already. And as I said, this is only the, re- the beginning. Right now, they are, they are only troubled by Jesus' words, but soon there will be the devastation of the actions of Judas and the terror of coming face to face with a band of Roman soldiers carrying torches and weapons to arrest them. Jesus knows what they're going to experience, and he knows the temptations. Listen, he knows the temptations that you are experiencing and the the temptations you will experience in the days and months and years ahead. He knows the fears that you are struggling with right now, and he is saying to you these words, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, we take this as as comfort for our souls. We hear this as, you know, in the King James, it's usually uh, said, um, people usually quote the King James when when they say this, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. And we, oh, that's so comforting. God is is going to comfort our, our hearts. And that is true. His person and his promises. But I think there's more weight to this better translation, do not let 
your hearts be troubled. This is a command. It's, it's not an, an imperatively, imperative grammatically in the text, but this is clearly Jesus' intent. In other words, do not let your heart be troubled. Here's another way to say it. Do not let the impulses of your heart go unchallenged. You hear the bad news, you respond. Your heart responds. Do not let that response go unchallenged. And by the way, we could just say this for any kind of temptation. Where there's temptation to lust, don't let those thoughts go unchallenged. Anxiety, don't let those thoughts go unchallenged. Depression, fear, whatever, don't let those thoughts go unchallenged. Now, I know this may be a new way of thinking for some, but it is not good for us to simply let our hearts do what they are naturally inclined to do. You may be prone to anxiety or depression. You may be prone to lust or discontent or anger, but that's not, that's not because your heart knows what is best and is worthy of your trust. To the contrary, Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17.9, you're familiar with this, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and des- desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And later the Lord says, I, the Lord, know the heart. I understand the heart. And that's right. Your hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And and the whole message of the Bible, I mean, what I mean by that is from Genesis to Revelation, you hear this message repeated again and again. Do not trust your hearts. Don't let the impulses of your heart go unchallenged. Don't allow your heart to become fretful and discouraged, and you do nothing about it. You have a choice. You have a choice. And you may ask, well, what is that choice? And I would say, thank you for asking. That's, that's a great question. The choice is this. It's between obeying the deceitful impulses of your heart or believing what Jesus says about himself. You're either going to obey the deceitful impulses of your hearts or you're going to believe what Jesus says about himself, namely that he is worthy of your trust. Watch this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And here's, here's, here's the faith part. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now this verse is, uh, is one that scholars call at they refer to it as an imperative-imperative pattern. Uh, rather than saying something like this, you trusted in God, now trust in That's not what he's saying. Um, both sections of this phrase are commands. Believe in God, believe in me. Or, Just as you have believed in God, believe also in me. Um, Why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I distrust the fearful impulses of my heart and trust in Jesus instead? Well, Thomas actually 
takes us to where we need to go on this. And so you're going to have to skip down um, to verse 5. And uh, often when we refer to this particular apostle, we refer to him as what? Doubting Thomas. Good. Uh, And that's really because of a skeptical statement that he made um, after there was a resurrection. He skipped Sunday evening service, and um, Jesus appeared. He didn't see him, and so he was skeptical that Jesus was still alive. And so ever since then, he's been called Doubting Thomas. In this context, however, Thomas is not doubting. He simply likes the feel of solid facts under his feet. Jesus is being rather cryptic in what he's saying. I'm leaving, you can't come. And every, everybody else in the room is, with the exception of Peter's bravado, which the Lord stamped out. But here Peter, Peter really wants an explanation. And we could be thankful, I'm, I said Peter, I mean Thomas. T- we can be thankful for Thomas because he really does, he wants an explanation. And we can be thankful because Jesus' explanation really entails one of the greatest statements that he ever has made in the Gospels. And one that is one of the most beloved statements that Jesus ever made. Thomas asks, watch this, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? In response, verse 6, Jesus Jesus responds by giving us what is the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. This is the sixth time Jesus has referred to himself as I am. And so in response to Thomas's question, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus simply responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So when Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, it's because he is the only way to God. You can't Really, believe in God without believing in me. It starts with me. You believe in God, believe also in me, because apart from me, you don't get God. He is the only truth. He is the only way. He is the only life. He is the only way to God. He is the only truth of God, and... He is the only life of God. And the word only here is is significant. Um, Beloved, you look at this passage, and you've got to see this. And it's clear, and it's hateful in the eyes of the unbeliever. But look at this statement, and behold the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to God. You can't get to God by following your heart. You can't get to God by following Allah or Buddha or Obama or Oprah. And there are people who are following all of them. 
or any one of them. You can't get to God by having a spiritual experience. That doesn't get you to God. Prayer doesn't get you there. Meditation doesn't get you there. Good works don't get you there. Giving to the poor does not get you there. Going to church does not get you there. I assume in a crowd as large as this, there are unbelievers here. You're here. You're religious. But really, the way you're practicing your life demonstrates a belief of how you can commend yourself to God, and it is false. The only way anyone will ever get to God is through his Son, Jesus Christ. To Thomas's question, where are you going and how can we know the way, Jesus' answer is, is, is essentially this. The Father is where I'm going. And I am how you're going to get there. I'm going to the Father, and you are going to the Father. But the only way you'll get to the Father is through me. I am the way. I am the way. I am the way. You may be thinking, well, that, that exclusivity, that that sense, that statement that nothing else can put you in good standing with God, nothing else can reconcile you to God, that's offensive. It's offensive. I've had, I've had people come in, they sit through the service a little while, and they leave very quickly. And on the way out, they'll say things like, why does your pastor hate Catholics? Or why does your church hate, you know, fill in the blank. Look, that's not what this is about. However, it is about an exclusive gospel. It's an exclusive gospel. It is Christ alone. It is, in the words of the Puritans, uh, the, the Reformers, it is sola Christus. It is Christ alone. It is only Christ. It is not Christ, Christ plus your works. It is not Christ plus the mass. It is not Christ plus the treasury of merit in heaven. It is not Christ plus the saints. It is not Christ plus meditation. It is Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. And there are many people who are religious and they take some kind of variation on the theme of Christianity, whether that's Catholicism or Mormonism or Seventh-day Adventism or whatever, and they'll say, oh, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith because of Christ. And that sounds right, but it's incomplete. We believe because the scriptures teach that salvation is, in, is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And that is offensive. That's not only offensive to the unbelieving world, that is, ref that is a really offensive to other religious people, especially some who call themselves believers, Christians. Well, if, if that's your first thought, that this is offensive, I, I have news for you. 
It's not just offensive now. It was offensive when Jesus said it. And this isn't the first time he said it. It's the first time, the only time we know of he said it this way. But um, it's not the only time that Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. It turned, since we're in John, and I'm going to read from a couple other Gospels as well, but turn two pages back to chapter 10. And uh, look at verses 7 through 10. This is John 10, beginning with verse 7. John 10, verse 7. Truly, truly, whenever, whenever he says that, it's, it's amen, amen. It's a signal. It's code. You know, it, it means sit up. Take notice, pay attention, this is really, really important, don't miss this, this is primary, uh, it, this is not fluff off the top, this is the essence of the gospel, or part of it, John 10, 7 through 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, I want you to think before I read the rest of this, imagine the Pharisees listening to this. They're the religious leaders. They're the guys who are wearing the robes and the funny hats and the tassels. And I am the door of the sheep. Now listen to this. Um, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. You see the similarity between this and... John 14, 6. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have what? Life. So here's the way and the life. And have it abundantly. This is an exclusive claim. I am the only door. Everybody before me who claimed to be a door to God was nothing but a thief and a robber. Pharisees, they got the message. They got it loud and clear. You talk about offense. And you can turn here if you want to, but Matthew 7, verse 13 Jesus kind of, um, he makes this a little clearer. Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, now watch this, and the way, and this is the wrong way, but it's the same terminology, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many, there are many who enter through it. They enter the wrong way through the wrong door, and there are many who are doing that. For, or but, the gate is small, and the way, there it is, is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And what's Jesus say? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then an exhortation in Luke 13, 24. And you don't have to turn there. It's very short. 
Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? Because they try to enter by some other way. You don't get to God through any other gate. The religious and political leaders of Jesus' day hated him for his exclusive claims. And because of it, they sought to kill him. But the reality is, Jesus is the way. He is the only way to the Father. And so hope for the troubled soul begins by believing that Jesus is the way, the only way to God. And as you approach God by the only way to God, you will also discover that Jesus is something else. He is the truth as well. He's the truth of God. He is the personification of all truth. Whatever is true about God is true in Jesus, and Jesus, because he is God, is the measure of all truth. Look to Jesus. Um, You want to know what is true about God? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what true holiness is? Look to Jesus. Do you wish to see what true love is? Look to Jesus. Do you desire to know what true justice, mercy, wisdom, and compassion, and a host of other things, in a world that tends to twist it all to fit their lives so that they are more free to sin. If you want to know the truth about all of these things, look to Jesus. He is the truth. He is the standard of all truth. You need look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the truth, and all claims to truth are measured against him. And as you looked for the truth of God, and you find it in Jesus, you will look for the life of God and find that in Jesus as well. Jesus is life. He is the life of God. He is eternal life. If anything, listen, if anything is alive, it's because Jesus is alive. If there is anything that has life, I mean anything. It's because Jesus is alive. Life comes from him. Organic life comes from him. Spiritual life comes from him. There is no other way to be alive. But you can have organic life by his grace and completely miss spiritual life, eternal life. This is why hope begins by trusting Jesus' person rather than the impulses of your heart. When you face difficult times and in the moment things aren't going your way, when your heart begins to be troubled, 
believe in Jesus' revelation of his person. He is trustworthy. He is with you. He will never leave you. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. One commentary points out a parallel here between this passage and um, the story of the prodigal son. I think this was S. Lewis Johnson, but I'm not positive. But I love the connections here. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, like the sinner, the boy was lost, verse 14. He was ignorant, verse 17, and he was dead, verse 24. That's the part where the son said, behold, this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. But he came to the father, verse 20. He was lost, but Christ is the way. He was ignorant, but Christ is the truth. He, is, he was dead, but Christ is the life. And he arrived at the Father's house when he repented and returned. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And I would just say, I am confident they are hearing my voice right now. And you are like the prodigal son. You are religious. And you know the goodness of the Father. And you have been in rebellion against him. You just want your own way. Isaiah 53 was right. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid, that is, the Father has laid the iniquity of us upon him, upon Christ. I plead with you, turn back to the Father. Turn back to the Father. Come to Christ. You're lost. He is the way. You're ignorant. He is the truth. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but he is the life. Come to him. Likewise, another commentator said this, just making an observation here about the parallel between what Jesus is saying here and the Genesis 32 story of Jacob's ladder and how Jesus takes that story in John chapter 1, verse 51. You remember when he meets Nathaniel? And there's that interchange. And um, Jesus says something about Nathaniel. Here is a man in whom, uh, here is a true Jew in whom there is no guile. And I mean... That doesn't sound like very much, but, but uh, Nathaniel responds, you are the Christ of God. How did you know that? You know, don't say that if somebody compliments you. <laughs> you must be a prophet. Somebody comes to you and says, you know, that song you sang was just glorious. You are just a really good singer. You must be a prophet. <laughs> Nathaniel's response didn't take much to identify Christ for him. And Jesus says, are you impressed by that? I tell you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What does that mean? Jacob's ladder, he's obviously taking that story and applying it here. And he's saying, oh, you think, you think that's wonderful. 
You have not yet considered who I really am. Christ of God, you have your own definition of what that means. It needs to be modified. It needs to be changed because it's going to be, I'm really going to be a disappointment to you if that doesn't change. But here's something that you will discover later on, and that is, I am the only way to God. If you want to get from earth to heaven, you have to go by means of the ladder, and that ladder is me. And there's only one. And so the first cure for the troubled heart is found in trusting Jesus' person. His person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. He is the only way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Second, Hope is found in trusting, not only trusting in Jesus' person, but trusting in his specific promise. And there are many, but there is one in this text. Hope is found in trusting Jesus' promise. Look at verses 2 and 3. Okay, so, so what I've done here is I've taken the first verse and it first couple and then the last few, which I think are, are speaking about the same thing, Jesus' person, But right squashed in the middle of it, Jesus starts making this promise. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Very simply, this is Jesus' promise of heaven. Heaven is a real place. It's a place of existence for all who will believe. In the New Testament, heaven is described in various ways. It's described as a kingdom. It's described as an inheritance. It's described as a country. It's described as a city. And it's described as a home here in John 14. And it seems to me that Jesus is using the Jewish analogy of a man who is marrying his love. And this is how they would do it. They would make arrangements. You know, the young man would go to the father and make arrangements. By the way, man, don't do that unless the, the girl likes you. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I've just seen that go badly too many times. Um, where was I? But the young man would go to the, to the girl's dad, and they would make the appropriate arrangements. There was the bride price, there was the dowry, there was all those things that, praise the Lord, don't necessarily carry over into our time. And then, once approval had been given the young man would do something. He'd go home. And he'd tell his bride-to-be, stay here. I'll be coming back. Where are you going? We just got engaged. I'm going to prepare a place for us. I'm going to prepare a place. And a lot of times, 
they would just add on to the family's house, the father's house. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then you should know this for certain, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also in my Father's house, which will be our house, our home. The home is specifically said to be the Father's house. In the King James, it says this. Now, I'm not picking on the King James, but it, it's, it's, it's good because uh, King James is, has built into us some theology that probably needs to be shaped and nuanced a little bit. But he says, it says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And a number of songs have been written um, about, uh, you know, I've got a mansion over the hilltop, and there are other, some, some old spiritual songs that talk about, you know, if you're good, you're going to get a, a mansion. If you're not, you're going to get something else. Um, probably, it's not the best translation, mansions. Jesus is portraying a picture of a wealthy Mideastern man who owns a very large house that contains many rooms. In my father's house are many rooms. Now, I hesitate to call them apartments because you might not want to go there if you know you're going to have an apartment. <laughs> and I'm not sure condominium helps much. <laughs> Jesus is preparing for us a house, a home, a place with him, with his Father. That's the point. And when you think about the New Testament, just think of the Gospels. When you think the house of God, you think what? Say it. Uh, yeah, church, but in, in the Gospels, in the Gospels, the temple. The temple, who lives in the temple? God. It's the place of God's presence. Whatever heaven is, it is where God is. We will be in his presence. You can think of it as a kingdom. You can think of it as a country. You can think of it as a household. You can think of it as the temple. It is that place where we will be with God in a reconciled state. He is our God and we are his people and there's nothing between us. There's no wrath, there's no justice, there's no, there's no condemnation, there's, there's no discipline. It is pure joy, love, unity, oneness. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Now, I don't know what it means to be preparing heaven. How do you prepare heaven? I, I really, I probably need to drill down deeper on that. To, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody even ask that question. What does it mean that he's preparing heaven? Uh, that early uh, Christian songwriter, Keith Green, says, uh, in six days, think of this, in six days he created everything, but he's been working on heaven for 2,000 years. <laughs> now, what's that going to be like? I don't know what preparing heaven means. I don't, and the reason I say that is because I, I can't imagine that anything needs to change or be fixed or added to in heaven. And, and I don't think that's the point. I think 
Jesus is just telling us, the place you love to be is home. The place of security, the place of joy, the place of unity, it should be, is your home, and there's no place like it in all the world. And especially if you're a newlywed, and you're still in that first several months of your, quote, honeymoon period, you think before you're married, when I get married, we will have a home, and it will be heaven to us. Jesus is saying, hold that thought, because that is what heaven truly will be. It's probably not what your marriage is going to be, because you're both sinners. But that ideal of perfect oneness, one flesh, absolute unity. I mean, that's what marriage is supposed to be, right? A picture of Christ living in perfect unity with his church. Hold that thought. While it may not be true in your marriage perfectly, that idea you longed for before you got married will be the reality for eternity in your relationship with one another, with Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. It is his house, his home, your home. And it is coming. So no matter what is happening right now, geopolitically, nationally, personally in your life, we have a person and we have a promise. We have a person who just happens to be the only way, the only truth, the only life, and he has promised heaven. And so that's the promise. That one day Jesus himself will come for his bride and take her home to the Father's house. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may also be. And we discover in this verse, beloved, that there is something more important and far more wonderful in heaven than simply the experience of joy and peace and the removal of the absence of sin. Jesus says, where I am, you will also be. You know, John later in his epistle says of Jesus, it was John, it wasn't Peter, though you have not seen him, you what? Love him. But in his house, you will see him face to face. You will see him. Face to face, he will know you by name. Don't you love it when someone that uh, you have some respect or honor for, and you see them and they call you by name? There was a family in this church years, a number of years ago. They were here for years and years, and somehow we were sitting at a campfire or something just chatting about you know, you know life at Calvary Bible Church, and I asked this couple, um, tell me about when you came you know, I know what church you came, came to, and it's a pretty good church. Why, why did you end up coming back after that first visit? And the wife immediately had an answer. She said, well, we come from a large church, and the second week we came back, we walked through the door, and, and, and she said, Pastor, you were standing there, and when you saw us, you called us each by name. 
And she said, from that moment, we knew this is the place for us. Now, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that that doesn't always happen. But in that case, why? Why? Because it's wonderful when you think that there's someone that you respect, you have some level of honor for, and they know you. They know you. I mean, con- consider, I mean, the gulf between that and the reality that when you step into heaven, like my mother-in-law did a few weeks ago, she will step in, and she stepped in, and, and Jesus, the very Son of God, whom she had been loving and worshiping, though having never seen, and when she walks in, being one of millions upon millions, she stepped before him, and he said, Janice, welcome. I've been looking forward to this. Can you imagine? I can't. I mean, just enough to put words together to talk about it. A.W. Tozer says, words creak and groan under the weight of the glory of the Son of God. How do we even describe these things? Heaven is living forever in the presence of Christ. What are you looking forward to most about heaven? Being reunited with your loved ones? That's good. It's good. It's going to happen. It's wonderful. Seeing the angels, I'm looking forward to seeing the angels, especially the ones that followed me around and kept me out of trouble. <laughs> it's going to be glorious. Streets of gold, gates of pearl. I mean, gates of pearl, I mean, and streets of gold, you think, really, is that possible? Like, come on. Uh, where do pearls come from? Where does gold come from? Jesus not only has access to that material, he created that material. He can use whatever materials he likes in his house. He wants pearl on the front door. It would be amazing. But the most glorious thing about heaven, the most glorious thing about heaven, it's not going to be any of that stuff. I suspect when we get to heaven, we're not going to be all that impressed with the streets of gold and the pearly gates, or seeing the apostles, or your loved ones. You're going to be so breathtaken by the glory of the Son of God. Will you even be able to speak? When you think of heaven, what do you think? What do you think about? What are you looking forward to? What do you long for? Listen, if you are longing for, if your highest desire when you get to heaven is something other than Jesus, then you want the wrong thing. You're robbing yourself of the highest joy with regard to anticipation. Think bigger than pearly gates and golden streets and seeing your long-lost loved ones. You will be with Christ. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's never been like that before. Now it will be like that for eternity. 
Don't you long for that? You see, beloved, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, there is reason for great hope. There's reason for great hope. And that should be one of the, the main things that people see in our lives. Not complaining about our problems. That's what they do. Not being frumpy and joyless. The thing that people should see in our lives is hope, joy. When your loved one passes, they know the Lord. There ought to be a lot of joy. And you know what? People will see it. And they'll go, hmm, something's different there. Tell you what, when I, whenever I, uh, we went to the funeral for my mother-in-law, um, uh, one of the funeral directors came and, and he said, uh, um, tell me about your mother. And I told her a little bit, told her that she was a believer. And he said, oh, good. Well, why do you say that? Um, because funerals for believers are, are so much sweeter. It wasn't those exact words, but you could just see it on his face. He was trying to express, being very careful not to offend. But when a, when a family of believers comes to the funeral home, it's just different. There's joy. Why joy? Because there's hope. Why hope? Because we know the way, the truth, and the life. We know that no man comes to the Father through Jesus Christ, and we have, and so is our loved one. And so the promise of heaven is for them and for us. You see, beloved, in the midst of this crooked and perverse perverse generation, we have every reason to have hope. The road we walk through life may come with increasing difficulty, And it probably will. But we are not walking alone. It's not just his person, but because of his person, it's his presence. And we see this again and again, Psalm 23, right? I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. We're following a glorious person who's given us a precious promise to keep our hearts encouraged and motivated to keep on pursuing the pleasure of God, keep on pursuing pleasing him in everything as we struggle day by day. Dr. James M. Gray puts it beautifully in a song that he wrote years ago, and some of the lyrics go like this. Who could mind the journey when the road leads home. And Warren Wiersbe reminds us that the assurance of a heavenly home at the end of life's road enables us to bear joyfully with the obstacles and battles along the way. We can do this. We can make it home faithfully and joyfully. It was this assurance that even encouraged our Lord in Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him. And surely Paul 
thinking of this truth when he wrote, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed to us on that day. Romans 8, 18. Yes, we are living in troubling times. And the news one day is just trumped by the bad news the next day, it seems. And our troubled hearts are... Um, can easily kind of take control of your lives, right? Unless we remember Jesus, Jesus' voice saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will also be. And Thomas said to him, Lord, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you have come. If you have repented of your sin, and trusted only and exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, this is what you have to look forward to. And the Lord Jesus himself wants it to be something that both comforts and establishes and helps you to persevere through the troubles that you will experience along the way. Our troubled hearts are calmed when we do not let our feelings go unchallenged, but choose rather to trust in Jesus' person and believe in his promises of future grace instead. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need these reminders often, and especially now. I pray that these would not just be comforting words, but they would be sanctifying words, that you would change us through them. And make us more like Christ in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation in whom we shine as lights. Oh, Father, may it be true of us that our light so shines that men and women in this world will see our hope and our joy through our service, our good works. And they will be so amazed by it that they will on the last day Glorify the Father with us. O oh, Father, be glorified in us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.